This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast, where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 49. I cannot believe I'm up to episode 49. I do want to give a shout out to a special listener. I don't want to say your your name because I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I happened to be on my Amazon Central author homepage, and I noticed that you put a very nice review up there. And you also noted that you've listened to all 48 of my podcasts. So thank you. And if you are comfortable with me saying your name in the, in the future, you can let me know, but I'm really glad that you found both the book and the podcast helpful. So thank you. I, again, I was very impressed that you listened to all 48 in a relatively short time. Wow. Yeah. Props to you. Okay. So in today's podcast, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to answer some questions that I have received from you, my fabulous listeners. I often receive questions and emails from you And usually I can dedicate an entire podcast to a specific question. The questions that I'm going to tackle today are questions that are also important, but may not be, the answer may not be lengthy enough to have an entire podcast episode. From this point forward, I'm going to compile these questions and devote occasional episodes in which I respond to them. But before I begin, please know that if you email me and I think your question would be helpful to other listeners, I ask your permission before I share. You may think that your problem is extremely unique and it is so extremely unique that if I were to mention your problem, everybody would know it's you. Everybody in the support group would say, oh my gosh, that's Janelle or that's Jeb. No, trust me. It is not probably like that because there are 6 million people in the United States right now who are, who have a dementia diagnosis And those 6 million people are receiving care from 15 million caregivers in the United States. I don't think you are the only person in the U.S. having this specific problem, although it probably feels like you are. And maybe in your support group, you may be the only one having this issue, but uh, trust me, it's, it's probably more common than you think. If you are struggling with a specific situation, I can guarantee that someone else is also struggling. Now, if you are listening outside of the U.S., I also am happy to receive emails. I don't want you to think I only respond to emails from people 
who are emailing me from the U.S. I really don't know where you're emailing me from. I just answer. So that being said, I'm going to jump into question number one. Can a facility refuse to accept my family member with dementia who has dementia-related behaviors like refusing medication? The short answer is yes. Any facility can refuse admission to anyone if the facility believes that they cannot provide safe and appropriate care. And for my international listeners, I'm referring to U.S. facilities. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I think that any facility anywhere can say to you, no, we can't accept your family member because they require this type of care, and we can't do it. For example, in the U.S., facilities can refuse to admit someone who depends on complex medical equipment, like a breathing machine called a ventilator. There are nursing homes that do have dedicated units for people on ventilators, but that's not very common. Facilities can also refuse to admit people whose levels of care are beyond the levels offered by their staff. Most nursing homes offer skilled nursing care, which includes wound care, for example. But if an individual is asking for admission and that individual requires sterile dressing changes every two hours by a registered nurse, the facility may deny admission because that specific nursing home may not be able to meet that level of care. You may be thinking, my family member has dementia and people with dementia often refuse to take medications, among other things. If a facility markets itself as providing dementia care, should not that facility be equipped to handle these types of behaviors? In my opinion, yes. If a facility says, I have a memory care unit, or we provide care for people with dementia, they better be able to handle dementia-related behaviors. But here is what's really going on. There are two major types of facilities in the U.S. that provide 24-hour dementia care. Your nursing homes and then your assisted living facilities. Now, I do know there are private homes in which people will provide care for individuals and they may provide care for, say, two or four people. Yes, those facilities do exist, but I'm talking about the two major types. In episode 46, I went into a lot of detail about the difference between the two types of facilities, nursing homes and assisted living facilities. So if you've been skipping around, you may want to go back to 46. But briefly, nursing homes were developed from the medical model, and they comply with federal regulations known as the Code of Federal Regulations, Section 42. Nursing homes receive yearly inspections from state surveyors, and the results of these surveys 
must be provided to anyone who asks for them. In fact, written copies are supposed to be posted and be accessible. On the other hand, assisted living facilities follow state laws and state regulations. They receive inspections from the Department of Health. Assisted livings rarely receive annual inspections. Inspections are usually instigated by complaints. Assisted living facilities in, on the plus side are not based on the medical model and therefore are more home-like and place less emphasis on handling behaviors and providing full care. Many assisted living facilities do advertise that they have memory care units that are designed to provide a home-like and safe environment for people with moderate stages of dementia and even mild stages. I think people with MCI usually can handle living in independent living, but once you're getting into the mild to moderate stages, an assisted living environment is the next step. Assisted living facilities are less likely to accept people with behaviors and may have policies where a specific behavior may result in an automatic transfer to an emergency department. And truth be told, emergency departments are not designed to handle dementia behaviors. Even psychiatric emergencies in emergency departments are handled through sedation until uh, sedation and observation until a room uh, opens up on the psych unit. In some assisted livings, they may say that we will transfer your loved one to an emergency department or if there's a specific behavior going on, we may transfer directly to a psychiatric facility. If you are considering placement for your loved one, read everything that you sign because I, I know the paperwork is overwhelming, but you want to know if your loved one exhibits behaviors, what will the facility do about it? Now, another issue that comes into play about whether or not a facility is likely to accept behaviors and whether or not a facility is going to be quicker to refuse to admit a resident who has dementia-related behaviors is their profit status. Nursing homes in the U.S. are considered for-profit or not-for-profit. And here is the difference. Both of them have to generate sufficient funds to pay the bills. But let's say you have two facilities, and at the end of their fiscal year, they both generate a profit of $50,000. The for-profit facility splits the 50K among investors or shareholders. The not-for-profit facility does not do that. If you have not-for-profit status, you have to reinvest any profit into the organization. So the not-for-profit facility may choose to invest all or some of the money into the physical facility, like purchasing new furniture or better bathing chairs or replacing the carpet or replacing the flooring. 
They may also choose to reinvest the profit into the staff in the form of training or higher salaries. To be honest, in my humble opinion, some of the best facilities that I have seen are usually not-for-profits run by religious organizations. And that's not a blanket statement. I'm sure someone may have had a really bad experience with a not-for-profit that was run by a religious organization, but overall, those facilities tend to seem to provide better quality of care overall. Another reason why a facility may refuse to accept a potential resident is the current bias against antipsychotic medication. And here's the history. In 2011, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services embarked on an initiative to lower the rate of antipsychotic usage in nursing homes because antipsychotic medications were at that time the first response to dementia-related behaviors. And antipsychotic medications come with risks and often make other problems worse without addressing the behaviors that caused them to be prescribed in the first place. In 2011, it was, I think it was like 23 point something percent, so almost a quarter of nursing home residents were receiving antipsychotic medication at that time. Since the initiative, the national rate is around 14%. I've seen it 13, 14.3, it bounces around. Some states are much lower than the national average. In fact, when I was looking at the states with the best antipsychotic rates, they seem to be mostly in the northeastern part of the U.S. States with antipsychotic usage that is higher than the national average tend to be clustered in the southeast. And states like Alabama, I think, is among the highest. I think Mississippi might be close on its heels. So some states are doing better than others. What's happening is nursing homes within states that have, uh, that, are, that have been more aggressive about the reduction of antipsychotic usage may be hesitant to accept a potential resident who is already on an antipsychotic because they don't want to mess up their numbers. And I'm not saying that's 100%. I have personally experienced situations where that has happened, either to a client or to someone I was working with in the clinic, and that became an issue. I am not a fan of antipsychotic medication. I understand that family caregivers need to sleep, and there are times when such medication in small dosages can help while the family caregiver tries different non-drug approaches and strategies to address a behavior. Nursing homes and assisted living facilities have three shifts, or two if they're going the 12-hour shift route, and they pay people to work around the clock. 
Therefore, some facilities are open to admitting a resident and then trying to wean them off the antipsychotics so that they're only using antipsychotics if nothing else is working. What do you do if a facility refuses admission? You can ask them why, and maybe there is something you can do or work out. But here's the thing. If a facility is refusing admission to your family member, I think they're telling you that they don't feel equipped to deal with your loved one's behaviors. And forcing the issue may result in a situation where it's not a good fit for your family member. Yes, that does really not, that's not helpful when you need placement, but it's never a good idea to, to take the first available without making sure it would be a good fit for your family member. And I do have some podcast episodes on vetting facilities. Okay, question number two. My husband refuses to remove his adult incontinence briefs, also known as Depends, but Depends is a brand name, so I'm going to call them briefs. I'm able to get him cleaned up in the morning, and I put on a fresh brief, but the rest of the day, he will not let me take them off. It upsets me. I try to pull them down, and he fights with me. There are some evenings I just give up and let him go to bed even though his briefs definitely have poop in them, and I am really upset about this. So me, being the pragmatist, I tell family caregivers, cut the damn things off. I had one daughter who would accidentally tear the brief when she was removing her mom's pants or helping her mom with adjusting a shirt, and then she would tell her mom, oh, I accidentally tore your brief. Let me go give you a new one. Because if she said to her mom, mom, I think your brief is wet. Let me give you a new one. Mom would say, oh, no, it's not wet. I didn't wet myself. Because either mom didn't realize she was incontinent or she didn't want to... I don't want to say she was lying to her daughter there may have been an automatic response of, of course I'm not incontinent. I don't wet myself, that type of thing. And the daughter then approached it with, oh, okay, I I know your brief is fine. Here, let me help you. Let me fix your pants. Let me do something. And then she would tear the brief a little bit and then say, oh, shoot, let me give you a new one. So there was a socially acceptable reason at least in mom's reality, for removing the brief. Daughter wasn't removing it because it was wet or it had poop in it. She was removing it because she accidentally tore it. Now that's one way you can go. You can use the entering their reality and approach it that way. I like the more expedient route. I would recommend bandage scissors. These are the scissors that are bent so that the blades are at almost a 90 degree angle to the handle and the pointy ends are rounded to avoid poking anybody with the scissors. You can get bandage scissors at any drugstore, at Walmart, and on Amazon. 
You, I personally, I like the EMT banded scissors. The handles are bigger and the blades are longer, but they still have the rounded edges so that you can cut through the briefs faster. So you want to cut down both sides and slip it through the middle. I have sat people down on toilets or shower chairs and I cut through both sides, moved the flap down, the front flap down, and then stood them up. And the brief stayed on the toilet or shower chair and I could then walk them away and, and get them cleaned up. I also recommend having scented kitchen trash bags available so you can toss the soiled brief there instead of the bathroom trash can, then having to go back and empty the bathroom trash can. Baby wipes are also good to have on hand if you have to rapidly clean a soiled bottom and you don't think your family member is going to cooperate enough for you to get a washcloth and heat it up or, or run the hot water and wet the washcloth and, and go and clean them up. But whatever you do, don't flush baby wipes down the toilet. I know that some of the manufacturers market the baby wipes as flushable. Oh yeah, they're flushable all right. They'll go down the toilet, but they get snagged in the pipes. And next thing you flush that toilet and you have feces and toilet paper and other <laughs> shit, no pun intended, spewing out of the toilet. I have that lived experience of Mark and I cleaning up a backed up toilet for that reason. No, do not flush the baby wipes. Now, I also have family members who will stop and they're trying to put on gloves and then clean their loved ones. And the act of putting on the gloves is slowing down the process and you get more resistance. This is going to sound really gross, but gloves are not always necessary. And here's where I'm going with this. When I worked as a nursing assistant in the 1980s, we were not allowed to wear gloves. We were told by the Holy Redeemer sisters, that's why God made soap and water. And if I were to put on gloves, I would convey to the person in the nursing home that they were dirty. So I cleaned up a lot of poo and pee without gloves. I will tell you, soap and water does sufficiently clean your hands, even if you get a little poo on them. I never got sick. I never picked up an infection. I was meticulous with washing my hands after every caregiving activity, which is really interesting because now that I teach nursing students and we've gone the opposite direction where we do what's called universal precautions, which means if I'm going to possibly touch a body fluid or feces, I automatically glove in the event that may happen. And I have to get on the case of my nursing students to constantly wash their hands because they put the gloves on, they take the gloves off, and then they forget to wash their hands because I had gloves on. No, some gloves can have holes, gloves can be permeable, even though they're not supposed to be, and you can get whatever you're touching can get on your hand. So sorry for that little trip down memory lane. And I'm not advocating that you barehand it, but in situations where you may not be able to get to gloves fast enough and you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is so gross. Yeah, it's not pleasant, but 
you can still wash your hands. Now, if anyone is having issues with removing soiled clothes, it is really hard to demo on a podcast. I am hosting a live webinar on July 5th at 6 p.m. Central Daylight Time. I have a link in the show notes or you can access my webinar schedule. I actually have the entire yearly schedule already set up. I provide free webinars every month and you can register in advance because the program I use, I have it set up to send out reminders to those who register. We'll see how well it works. So I have the link in the show notes. On to the third question for today's Q&A podcast. And the question I received was this. My family member is suddenly more confused and more combative. This is the third night in a row that neither of us have slept. What do I do? And I'm glad the person reached out to me because I've seen questions like this in various Facebook groups for dementia caregivers. And what I see is I'll see 20, 30, 40, 50 comments where everyone is saying, call the doc and get some meds. And then the family caregivers are even making recommendations. Oh, Seroquel did the trick for me. I love Risperidone. Oh, we got this or, or that medication. Here is my concern. Anytime your loved one living with dementia becomes suddenly more confused, suddenly more combative, think infection. It's called delirium, and that is a response to some type of metabolic problem, often infections. And people with dementia are very sensitive to the demands an infection puts on their body. Because when you think about it, if there's an infection, the body has to pull resources from other parts of the body and fight off the infection. So if the body is already trying to support a dementia-compromised brain, and now it has to go deal with an infection, you can understand while you'll see a sudden uptick in confusion and combative behavior. Also, you may see new incontinence. People with dementia rarely complain of bladder pain or back pain. Bladder infections usually show up with sudden and abrupt changes in behavior and sometimes new incontinence. Your loved one's temperature may also increase, but as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, their baseline temperature may be 97 or 96.8. This means that if you take their temperature and you note that their temperature is 98.6, they are having a fever. But the problem is if you call your primary care provider and say, oh, my mom's temperature is 98.6, the medical assistant or the receptionist answering the phone who may not understand older adult physiology is going to say, oh, that's normal. It's not normal for older adults. And interestingly enough, with all the blood shortages, I've been giving blood 
uh, a lot more regularly than I did in the past. And every time I go in to give blood and my vital signs are taken, my temperature is 97, which is really interesting. So my temperature has already, my core temp has already started to drop. Now, the nice thing about my core temp dropping is the heat doesn't bother me as much, but cold does. Hey, there's always a silver lining in everything. So where I'm going with this is it's a good idea to take your loved one's temperature when they are fine to know what their baseline is, to know where their normal temperature lands. This way, when you if you know their normal temp is 96.5 or 97.2, you then know if they're 99, they are really sick. The other thing you can do to get an idea if it's a bladder infection is to take a look at the urine. If it is brownish yellow, it probably has blood in it, which is another sign of a bladder infection. It may also smell foul. Now I get this question a lot. Urine doesn't exactly smell nice. You're right. Urine, I was about to say healthy urine, but <laughs> urine that it doesn't, isn't associated with a bladder infection has that ammonia smell, but if there's an infectious process going on, it has a, a, a worsening foul odor. And the only way I can describe it is if your loved one is having a bladder infection and you are noting the smell and the odor of the urine, you can compare that to how it would normally smell. I do know it is a pain to take your family member to the primary care provider and get the urine tested there. This, here's some ideas, but it does take planning. What you may want to do is before you're dealing with a urinary tract infection, let's say you take your loved one to his or her primary for some blood work or a routine visit, ask if they can spare what's called a urine collection hat. It is a plastic bowl shaped like a half circle and it fits under the toilet seat. And when your loved one sits down and pees, hopefully they pee in the collection area and there's the urine. Or you can check out your local drugstore drug or Google urine collection hat and order some from any number of online medical supply companies. But if you can get it from your PCP, awesome. But here's what happens. Your PCP might give you one and then you can go onto some of these sites. And I've seen sites where you can get like a dozen of them for a couple dollars. So just good to know. The other thing you want to ask your primary for, or your loved one's primary, is for urine specimen cups so that you can pour the urine into the correct cup and then take it with you to the appointment. Because the clinician is going to need to examine your loved one, but this way you're not sitting there for an hour or two waiting for your loved one to urinate while you're there, or you get to the appointment and you realize, oh snap, they did urinate in their incontinence briefs and now what? So that's why it, it may not be a bad idea to have these products ahead of time and be prepared. 
If you cannot get to your appointment within one hour of obtaining the urine sample, you can put the urine cup in a sealed plastic bag and stick it in your fridge for no longer than 24 hours. And your fridge should be set to no higher than 39 degrees Fahrenheit. The coolness of the fridge keeps the bacteria in the urine from multiplying and messing up the results. Again, this is a conversation you may want to have with your primary and have the plans in place. Because it's interesting, I was talking with a caregiver last week and the caregiver said, when I first started in this journey and my husband wasn't that bad, a little bit of cognitive impairment, I was like, I can do this. I can handle it. I'm prepared. And then the dementia started to get worse. And she thought, yeah, I can do this. I can read a blog, listen to a podcast. And, and then she realized that the behaviors got to such a point, she needed more guidance and help. And that's how she found me. I'm just putting it out there because so many times you may think, oh, okay, I, I got this, but it's not a bad idea to start educating yourself earlier in the journey so that you can make preparations like this one when the cheese isn't sliding off the cracker and you're in a crisis situation and you're ready for it. Okay. Now, going back to the bladder infection, the reason why a lot of people with dementia get bladder infections is inadequate fluid intake. And dehydration is a year-round risk for people living with dementia. Summer months can pose additional challenges if people are losing fluid from sweating and not consuming enough fluid to stay hydrated. Another place where people lose fluid and nobody thinks about it is if they are exerting it. Well, not just them, but anybody, if you're exerting yourself outside in the heat and you start breathing more rapidly, you're also losing some fluid as you exhale. Just, just something to think about. I hear from family caregivers that their loved ones often won't drink water or they insist on drinking caffeinated or sugary beverages, which also contribute to dehydration because caffeine is a diuretic and sugary beverages, if the person is already at risk for diabetes, can cause the blood sugar to jump up and then your body starts trying to lower the blood sugar through peeing more in people who are pre-diabetic or who have diabetes. So sugar-free popsicles and fruits with a lot of water, like anything in the melon family, are some creative alternatives to get more fluid on board. So those are the three questions. And at this point, I do have an announcement. Many of you who've been listening know my son is getting married. He's getting married July 31st. And to celebrate his wedding, I'm running a promotion for the Kindle version of Make Dementia Your Bitch. The promotion will run from July 25th to August 1st. And during that time, 
I am offering the Kindle version at almost half price in both the US and the UK markets. And if you're saying, why aren't I doing it in the other markets? It's because Amazon won't let me. It'll only let me run promotions in the US and the UK. So I'm so sorry about that. So take it up with Amazon and see if you can get Amazon to maybe expand their promotion. Okay, that wraps up to today's podcast. And thank you so much for listening. And together, let's make dementia our bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.